Hey guys, welcome to the Seven Figure Box Show. This is Andrew Frezza, and today's episode, I'm really excited to bring you guys a conversation that I had with Chris Cooper, who is pretty much a legend in our industry. Chris has built up Two Brain Business, which is a mentorship practice for gym owners, uh, up to 38 different mentors now, working with over 800 different gyms. And Chris has done some tremendous things in terms of scaling from you know, just being a gym owner, just being a coach, to now helping hundreds and hundreds of gym owners, as well as other various projects that he has going on. And I really enjoyed our conversation, especially the second half of our conversation, where we talked about his path and his journey through scaling beyond just the gym. So one thing I wanna point out is I kinda messed up here and recorded the first part of this interview during one of our classes. I did it in an office, but you could still hear a lot of the background noise. So the audio isn't great, for the first 20 minutes or so. There's still some really good info in there if you guys can get through it, but at the very least, I would really encourage you guys to listen from about that 20 minute mark on because there's some awesome nuggets in the rest of this episode. So hope you guys enjoy this episode and we'll talk soon. Well, I'm here with Chris Cooper, and I'm excited to talk to Chris. Been a fan of his for many, many years. One of my favorite books, uh, probably my most favorite book, specifically in the gym ownership realm, is Founder, Farmer, Tinker, Thief. That was a book he put out last year, and we're going to be talking about his new book today um, that's coming out or came out this December, as well as the State of the Industry Guide and some other things that I want to ask him selfishly myself. So, Chris, can you just give us a quick little... Like, like a highlight reel of some of the things that you've done in the industry and where you're at today, just so we get an idea of your your background. Yeah, yeah, thanks, Andrew. That was a really flattering intro. Um, so I became a fitness trainer in 1996. I opened a gym in 2005 because uh, even though my book was packed for personal training, I just couldn't make enough money otherwise. Um, my first gym was doing okay. It was a personal training studio in 2008. I found CrossFit, decided this was the way that I wanted to scale. And at the time thought, this is all I want to do for the rest of my life. Uh, opened a second location. That one almost bankrupted me. Uh, within a year and a half, I was broke. I was bouncing my own paychecks. The money that I was making from the personal training studio wasn't covering the money that I was losing from the CrossFit gym anymore. Um, just kind of locked into an amazing mentor at the time. Uh, there was a local mentorship program and I got selected for it because I had a, an inside track. Um, that turned my gym around. I started blogging about the changes that I was making uh, on a tight pad blog called don'tbuyads.com. And over the next three years, I just kept recording my progress and eventually got invited to speak to some gym owners. Um, I knew Ben Bergeron would be there. I knew Forrest Walden would be there and they would have an amazing presentation with uh, you know, booklets and guides and tools and all kinds of stuff. I had nothing. So I self-published the top 20 blog posts from my blog out of like 400 and I rolled them into a book because it was the cheapest way to ship them to Florida. And that's the best selling fitness business book of all time now with like 35,000 copies sold or something. Uh, and that was called two brain business in 2016. I founded two brainbusiness.com. I had already been mentoring gym owners under another flag. And, um, now we're the largest mentoring agency for fitness businesses in the world. That's awesome. That's, that's, uh, quite the milestone there with the, uh, the largest mentorship practice out there. Thanks. Um, 
Now, we'll, we'll, I got some questions on that, but we're going to come back to it. I want to touch on the sure. new book and, uh, and get right into that as well. So I thought Founder, Farmer, Tinker, Thief was, was so good, so comprehensive. My, my favorite part of the book, for those that haven't picked it up yet, is basically your, your questions or the checklist to move from one stage to the other. And I think that was so valuable because often as a gym owner, it's, it's not a matter of not having ideas of what to do to build your business. It's knowing what to work on now. And you, you made that very clear of, okay, when you're in this stage of the business, focus on these things and don't worry about these things in this next stage until you've got this dialed in. So it's been very helpful for us. You know, we've gotten to a certain point of our business, but we also were able to find some cracks in our foundation that you were able to open up with that book. So um, what, the, and the new one is gym owner's handbook, correct? That's what yeah. it's called. Yeah. So, so what can, can I expect to get out of this that I didn't get out of founder, farmer, tinker, thief that I love? Yeah. Thank you. Um, so my brain looks like a spreadsheet. And, um, if you think about a spreadsheet, you've got columns that run vertically and you've got rows that run horizontally. Founder, farmer, tinker, thief are the columns and this book are the rows. And so what you'll get from this book is more of a tactical breakdown of what you should be doing. So the way we broke it down is this, your business really has like two big sides to it. That's why we're called two brain business. You've got your operations, which is like the service that you're delivering. And then you've got your audience. These are the people that are paying you. And you have to, you have to nurture and develop each kind of separately. So from there, you can break each side of your business down into three parts. So in the operations part, you can like improve your delivery, you know, you can make your mission clearer and you can upgrade your team. On the audience part, you can get more clients, you can charge your clients more, you can keep your clients longer. You know, those are the only ways that you can really grow your business. So then what we did was we said, okay, well, if I'm looking to improve my audience by keeping my clients longer, what is the proven way to do that? And so that's where we start digging into data. And um, what this all looks like on paper is a giant spreadsheet that we call the roadmap that helps you kind of pinpoint, like, here's what I need to do right now. This is my top priority. And it gives you the strategy and the tactic to do that. So here's a video for you outlining your problem. Here's a short sentence saying, here's your goal, you know, uh, improve your close rate by 10%. Here's the tool we use to get you there. That's awesome. So the, the book is really like a compendium of these tools. Cool. So they they basically go hand in hand. Your last two books, um, and I've seen kind of glimpses of the chart that you're talking about, which is basically what you use to guide your your mentorship, right? Your mentorship right. practice for gym owners, and yeah. basically at any moment you could see, okay, I'm I'm in founder stage, and I need to work on marketing. Here's, here's the big three that I need to work on in order to move to the next stage in this category. Yeah, it, it goes a lot deeper. So for example, like overwhelm is still the biggest problem out there because we have so much information that we wanna do everything at once. So we find a new t-shirt supplier and we switch from Zen Planner to Lotify and, and we hire a coach and then we fire a coach and we, we're trying to do marketing at the same time. And what what this all comes down to is like the mentor's job is to identify what's most important right now and hold you to that until it's done and then identify what's most important to you next 
And really, that's where Founder Farmer Tinker Thief and the Jim Morris Handbook go together. Yeah. Yeah, you guys have really broken down the business side the way most people are used to seeing the fitness side. You know, people have seen stuff like the level method, exactly. which is brilliant. And you basically built out the level method for the business side, which is really cool. Yeah, that's it. Exactly. Nice. Um, cool. So the other thing we wanted to talk about was the state of the industry guide. Yep. And what were some of the, so where did you get that data for the state of the industry guide? And then... What were some of the key findings from that? Yeah, man, so I think it's okay to tell the story now. Um, years ago, when I was working for CrossFit, when you would visit CrossFit HQ, a lot of the staff would gather at this one place for breakfast. And so one morning we were sitting there out on the patio and the COO and the CEO at the time of CrossFit were there and you know they were talking about like affiliates, right? Like what's going on out there? And I would say something like, well, it would really help. Even though you guys don't want to be associated with a franchise, you don't want to take on the burden of responsibility for the affiliate success. I get that, but it would help if you would collect data and then just let us interpret it the way that we want to interpret it. You know, just put it out there for us. And they said, that's a great idea. We're not going to do it. Um, you go ahead. And so I said, okay, well, I guess it's up to me. And, and so I started, you know, investing in different ways to do this. And honestly, the first two weeks that I tried didn't work. You know, I burned through about a quarter million trying to figure this out. And then finally, um, Mike Lee, who's the C, uh, chief information officer at Two Brain now, he said, I'm just going to put something together. And so he actually programmed us up our first dashboard. Um, that's an app now. Um, so Two Brain clients use this app that has the roadmap that I just kind of described as well as a dashboard. So we started pulling metrics from all of the 852 brain gyms, you know, every single month. We started looking at trends. We started developing leaderboards, like, you know, who is most successful at this thing? And then interviewing them and saying, what are you doing that's slightly different? And then we would teach that to everybody else. And as that process got smoother and smoother, it got more powerful. And so we started approaching some of our partners with it. And they said, well, you know, what if, what if we take that system, that flywheel of information, and we pour data from another 6,000 tunes into it? And I said, great. And so we became the hub for this massive data set um, from providers like Wattify and Arbox, but also you know, specialists like Insight Tax and uh, Affiliate Guard. And so what that gave us was like this, this massive, massive book of numbers. And then um, we hired an independent data analyst, analyst uh, and said like, okay, draw some conclusions. And what he came up with was crazy interesting. And we, uh, we put this together in a state of the industry guide. And our goal is just provide objective data that gym owners can use to guide their future or interpret any way that they want to. I did some editorializing in there. Like, here's what I think this means, or here's what experience has told me how to interpret this. But by and large, it's really just there for gym owners to use to, to compare their own numbers against, you know? Have you always been a big data person? Not always. I mean, I've always been a nerd, but you know, in our, fit, in our industry, right? We're always combating um, myth, falsehood, and out and out liars. And like, when I started in fitness, I would just stay awake all night because people were trying to compete by selling like supplements that didn't work. I hated that. 
so I would get involved in research, and one of my first mentors was Mel Siff, who wrote Super Training, and he he kind of created in me like a, a this massive, monstrous demand for proof, like maybe maybe just a healthy skepticism, where if somebody presents a new idea to me, I say like, okay, great, let's see your numbers, like prove it. Um, and then when I started getting involved in the fitness business, it became really obvious that like. You know, I knew what my experience was, so I had N equals one data. And after I worked with 12 gyms, I had a data set of 12, but that wasn't prescriptive enough. You know, I had to get more. And uh, so really I've been working for about 10 years to get this kind of data. Nice. Um, what were some of those big findings? Once you had that data, what are the ones that jumped out to you? There's quite a few opportunities for, for micro gyms right now. Um, so a lot of uh, a lot of micro gyms are number one charging way too little. So the average that they make from a client is like 50 to 100 bucks a month. There's a lot of ways that they can fix that. Number one is just improving your rates. Another one is selling personal training or nutrition coaching. But the, the first thing that has to happen is they have to have confidence in their product. And so. That's not something that I would have guessed, you know, and, and so we're going to do a lot in 2021 to help with that, I think. The next thing is that, like, while ideas get um, adopted really quickly in our community, there's a lot of trust, a lot of affinity, a lot of excitement. Um, they're not always implemented well. So, for example, like 63% of this of the gyms in this data set have a nutrition coaching program, but that accounts for less than 3% of their gross revenue. So they heard I should have nutrition coaching, they added nutrition coaching, but like, not really, you know, it's there as an option, they're not really making money from it, and that means their coaches aren't making money from it, which means that their staff retention isn't as, as high as it could be, etc. And, you know, obviously, if you're not coaching nutrition, your clients aren't getting the results that they need either. Um, another interesting trend is that retention is actually going down uh, pretty significantly. And so, you know, a couple of years ago when we did a, a survey to measure retention, keep in mind that this is, you know, survey data, which is not as, as good, but most people were keeping clients for around 14 months. It was like 13.2 months or something. Now people are reporting, or the data is showing that people are keeping clients for about 7.8 months, which is, you know, it's, it's not good. It's, it's too much churn. You can't make a difference in a person's life in less than eight months. That kind of thing. So that was super interesting. Um, one that just got brought up on a call with our whole mentor team an hour ago was the average rate for a personal training client in a CrossFit gym is $72 an hour. But the average rate for personal training in a global gym where the coaches are part-timers, they're paid less, they've probably got a weekend course, you know, they're charging 50% more. So why is that? And so theirs is over 100? Yeah, yeah. It's 105 to 125 on average. And so why is that? Like, is that, is it confidence? Probably, you know. Um, so that that's, that really stood up to. There was also a lot of stuff around, like, what is your confidence in the CrossFit brand? How profitable are you? How profitable are you compared to the size of your gym? How profitable are you compared to the years of business and that kind of thing? And the interesting thing is that, Right now, gyms uh, who've been in business three years, you know, starting three years ago, are just as profitable as gyms who've been around for 10 years. 
And that's crazy interesting to me because, you know, three years ago, like, people didn't have this podcast to listen to, right? Mm-hmm. And so I do think that there are a lot of people out there like you who are doing good work and getting people profitable way faster than I ever was. Yeah, it's crazy. I think, you know, having, you know, I think about, I get a lot of people asking about like, should I buy a gym versus start fresh? And like my inclination is almost always start fresh because, you know, some of our biggest mistakes is starting our pricing too low. Um, you know, starting with maybe not an exact idea of how we wanted the business structure to be to then you're having to uh, make these adjustments with clients who are already bought into what you're doing. And it's hard to make those changes. It can be really hard. And, you know, I think it's a lot easier to start fresh off the right foot than it is to have to make adjustments to clients that already love you. And now you have to say, yeah, it's still going to be great as we do X, Y, and Z. It's, it's tough. And you know what makes it tough is like, these gyms are all offering amazing value already. So it's not like they can add more coach attention or more coach care or more touch points or better soft. Like there's really nothing that they can add. So when they try to raise their price, then the client says, okay, well, what am I getting for this extra 30 bucks a month? It's like, well, there's nothing else I can give you. <laughs> You're right. It's tough. And I think... No, I didn't think of it until you said it, but I think that makes a stronger argument for starting from scratch. Yeah. Now, do you have any good rules of thumb on the pricing? I know you have some good uh, breakdowns with the, uh, you know, the ninths model that you use, but like, is there a way that you can just kind of set, you could look at a gym, look at what they're charging and go, I know they're undercharging just based on what it is. Um, How do you assess that? That's really tough, man. That is super tough because... You know, we had a we had a gym contact us recently, 600 clients. Sounds great, but he's making less than a lot of gyms with like 150 clients would, you know. So in that case, it's easy for us to say, oh, if you raise your price $10 a month, suddenly you're at 20% profit and you're earning another 75,000 a year or whatever it was. Um, so we can look at like means and we can look at median averages and we can say like, well, here's about what people are charging in your area. The problem is that the people who set the template, you know, the the first gym in Atlanta, I shouldn't use Atlanta as a specific example. I I don't know who the first gym in Atlanta was, but they were priced too low. And the next guy was priced $5 less. And the next guy was $5 less than that, right? So it's, the problem is that the template was never set the right way in advance. So, you know, from all this data, kind of a model is emerging. And I think it ties into founder farmer well. I think that the model is uh, supported by anthropologists like Robin Dunbar really well. You know Dunbar's mm-hmm. number. Yeah, the 150. Yeah. So basically, like what we're saying is in founder phase, get to 50 clients, get super profitable. You're gonna do it all yourself. And for some people, that's actually enough. Like I just wanna buy myself a job, feed my family, and I'm good. And then the next stage is probably about 150 clients. And the reason that we picked 150 is not because like that's the magic number where you hit 33%. It's that's the magic number where the nature of your relationship with those clients changes. And that's where you have to add support staff and that kind of thing. So our goal now is like when you're in the farmer phase, get to 150 clients, make $100,000 a year and, you know, put systems in place that support 150 clients, et cetera. 
then you think, okay, now what? Do I scale up to 250 at this location? Do I open a second location? You know, what do I do? And um, that's really the start of Tinker Phase for us. Nice. Yeah. Now, what are your thoughts on most gyms having these additional revenue streams? Like, obviously, nutrition is is so valuable in the sense that it's so tied to the results someone's going to get with you. But when it comes to like, you know, retail and supplements and injury prevention training or one individualized programming, you know, uh, one of the things I see is that, and you kind of alluded to it, which is that if you don't, if you don't have enough of a structure and enough of an incoming revenue from that thing, all you've done is spread yourself thin to create this inflated revenue number and you're actually making less money because it's just another thing that's distracting you away from your core business. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, man. So I'm going to, I'm going to do a little mea culpa here. Um, when I wrote the first book, there was a section in the book that was talking about additional revenue streams. And, you know, this was 2012 people were running group classes. They were showing up to coach a class of like one or two people they were charging 60 to $90 a month. Like, and, and what was supporting me was the personal training. So I said, you know, you should have an additional revenue stream or two. Here's a list of 30, you know? And the point was that you should pick one or two from this list. But the point that people took, because I'm a poor writer is you should do 30 things. Yeah. And I didn't realize it until I was at a summit in like 2017 and somebody was sitting down with me John and, and he's like, you know, I, I did all these things, you know, and it's like, I make $10 from this or whatever it was a thousand from this a month. And, and I'm like, no, that's not it. So what you should really have is, you know, if you're looking at 150 people, just as an example, about 20% of those people should pay twice as much as the rest. And that's like the bell curve of your clients. So those people are probably paying for personal training or nutrition coaching. You know, those are the two big ones. Some people will add online training, you know, as kind of like the other leg on their chair or what have you. Um, and honestly, since I wrote the book, uh, supplement sales has become viable. Back then it wasn't, you know, you were putting out two grand in inventory to make 10% best case. That's not the case anymore. So yeah, you've got your core product and then one or two other revenue streams to pull your average revenue per client up. Cool. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, building the two brain mentorship side of things. And uh, first question is just a simple one. Do you still work with gyms one-on-one yourself? No, no, that's not my job. My job now is um, collect the data, uh, filter the data, compare the data against what we have, and then install it in our curriculum. So we have this big drawing in my other office, which is like the two brain information cycle. And I'm kind of at 12 o'clock of that cycle. And every month we collect data from our clients on what's working. Then we analyze that data and say, who is doing the best? And then we interview those people when we see like a consistent best practice that's slightly different from what we teach. We put that in our curriculum, you know, and then uh, we mentor people on making the change and then we collect data again and, and it goes in this loop. And that's really my job is to, to run that loop. Um, yeah. And that, that's what I do. Working with gyms one-on-one is awesome and I love it, but um, I, I just can't replace myself in this other data filtering role right now. 
how did you how did you realize that that was your role? I actually, and the reason I bring this up, I just recorded a podcast, released it last week about basically how the the game we're playing as entrepreneurs is changing all the time, and the best entrepreneurs are the ones that can realize, well, what game am I playing today, and how can I excel at that role? And I imagine some part of your role is is content creation and writing because yeah. that's a big part of it. But then it sounds like uh, data collection and dissemination is another part of your role. Um, could you talk a little bit about how your roles have shifted over the years? Yeah, man. So, I mean, for five years before I mentored anybody, I was publishing content every day. And I was doing that because that's how I learn. You know, when I write something down, rephrase it, translate it, I retain it. So that's what I was doing. And then um, I got hired by a website company to just do some one-on-one -on -one calls with their clients who were struggling. And um, it was me and Spieler for a very short time. And then he decided he hated it. <clears throat> and so I was doing one-on-one -on -one and, and quickly my book filled. And I said, okay, I've got to do something here. How do I get help? And uh, our solution then was let's build a course because you're saying the same thing, you know, pretty frequently, like, if you're going to do 10 hours mentoring somebody, you know, about 70% of that time is stuff that you've said before. Yeah. So we built a course and we launched it and we made like $15,000 in a weekend. And I, I was like, wow, I'm rich. And then uh, about six weeks after the course, I was driving through North Carolina, feeling like I was a software guru. And um, we had a two hour car ride and the guy I was with said, yeah, your course doesn't work. Like I, I took your course, I didn't make any changes because there was no accountability. And I went, oh shit. And that's actually what led to my split with that company was they, they loved the idea of selling a course. And I just said, I can't sell it if it doesn't work. So then I realized like the next step would be um, I've got to train mentors uh, to basically teach the same lessons that I've learned, right? So I've got to get this out of my head. So we do still use courses but the mentorship is really the important part. Um, so we started training mentors. Uh, we have 38 now on the team. They don't just regurgitate what I say. These are all incredibly smart people. They have great ideas and most of their ideas are better than mine. What became obvious very, very early on this journey is like, we have to decide which ideas are better than mine. And the way that you decide that at this level is proof, it's data. And so um, we had to set up like basically this data collection process so that the best ideas could rise to the top. Uh, I'm sure you see this a lot too, but like in our space, in the martial arts space, there are gurus who have a good idea. It wakes them up at night. They're excited about it. They put it on their podcast the next day. Let's do this. And, you know, a thousand people go out and spend money on that idea that's never been proven. And, you know, I think five years ago, that was okay, but I, we're just beyond that point now. Like it, it takes a lot to um, have an idea, make it to our curriculum at this point. So you still have, you still have Catalyst Gym, correct? Yep, absolutely. Yep. You still have Catalyst Gym. You have 38 mentors that are essentially working under you, so to speak, in this two brain. How do you protect your time protect your, your mental energy and structure your day so you can continue to focus on the data role and the content creation role writing um, as opposed to putting out fires all day for what's happening with your 38 mentor clients. 
Yeah, so um, 38 mentors serving about 850 gyms right now in, in a bunch of different programs. So um, the first thing is I have an amazing COO. Um, you know, we poached her from a big company and she manages daily operations. Um, I also have an amazing CIO, Mike Lee, who um, quit his job as a data analyst at a bank to open up a gym. And uh, I scooped him up when his gym joined our mentorship program. And then, you know, we work crazy hard to certify, test, and qualify these mentors. You know, they come from our own clients, so they know the systems. They go through like six or nine months of training. They have to get certified every year because they're insured. Um, so they all just went through their mentor exams again. Like it's a 90%. You have to get on this exam to pass. It's super hard. Um, so that's a big part of it, right, is like quality staff. But I've, I've had a mentor since the first one turned my gym around in 2009. And almost everything that I do with this mentor, Andrew, is like uh, focus. So I'll get on a call. I'll, they'll say, what are you working on? I'll say, here's three things. And they'll, we'll spend an hour getting rid of two of those things. You know what I mean? And that's been the hardest thing for me. Um, I also learn leadership a lot because I'm just not a natural leader. And I still don't think I'm a great one, but I'm, I'm approaching a C plus. So uh, from an F, you know, I'm making, I'm making some progress. That's helping. The other thing too, is that I've had to teach my staff and my family that like part of my job is to stay physically fit, mentally sharp so that I can handle the stress, produce the work that has to be produced. And so um, most days I get up and work from about five till about 6.30 or so, have breakfast, put my kids on the school bus. Um, now they're home in lockdown for about a month, it looks like, which is great. And then I go back to work until about 10. At 10, I work out. You know, I meet people online if, if I'm in lockdown too. Um, most of the time I cycle now. Um, and that's just because it helps me focus better than CrossFit did. And then by noon, um, I'm home for lunch. I generally have an early afternoon nap so that I can stay sharp and I work until about four. So my workday is still pretty long, but like it's really split into two days. And um, yeah, a lot of people would look at that, Andrew, and say like, oh, I'm jealous. This guy gets two hours off to exercise and he has a half an hour nap every day. And, you know, he's eating really well and he's doing a lot of it from home. But like, those are the things that I have to do to perform at this level. Yeah. What are your thoughts on what, or what insights do you have on coaching? Um, and obviously you have a great mentorship practice for gym owners, but Thanks, more, more from the personal standpoint, um, you know, when do you know to, how do you know a coach is a good fit for you? When do you know to shift coaches? Have you had multiple coaches at the same time? Like what, what are some of the thoughts you have on those things? Generally my coaches have overlapped. Um, and I, I, I mean, I wish I could say like, this was all done on purpose, but I just have incredible luck. So, you know, Dennis Turcotte fell into my lap. I, I knew somebody at the place, you know, so this guy, it was like a Lee Iacocca story. You know, he had turned around some big companies. One of the companies was in good to great. And uh, then he moved to Sault Ste. Marie to turn around our steel mill. And the share prices were trading at like 59 cents, you know, or something when he showed up. He said, I'll take shares of stock and $1 a year. Three years later, the share prices are over $58. And he says, I'm done. I'm going to retire, but my legacy here is going to be five local entrepreneurs. 
Okay. And I got picked because one, wow. of the, one of the guys who was like in charge of finding the entrepreneurs had been a personal training client of mine as a teenager. So like, I should not have been in this program. You know, the, the $500 check that I wrote for the first session should have bounced. Um, and then from there, uh, you know, my next mentor was Dan Martell. Um, I was at Archangel. I went to see Seth and Gary Vaynerchuk. Dan was also speaking. When I heard him start talking, um, I skipped lunch to listen to him. And by that night, he was my mentor. Um, that's kind of a crazy story too. And I was with him for years. He helped me through like the farmer phase of tubering. And then, um, uh, yeah, from there I started uh, reading books by Todd Herman and said, I really need help with my leadership. I was also working at that time with Marcy Swenson, who was a leadership coach at Google. At Google. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she was working with me directly. So every single week I'd get on a call with Marcy she would say, what's your biggest challenge? I'd say, here's a conversation that I'm just terrified of having. And we would walk through that conversation. We'd work up a script, we'd role play it, and I would go do it. And there was a, a very tough time in, in Two Brain, um, somewhere between like the one and the $3 million mark, where I was having these crazy stressful conversations all the time. And uh, so I had to talk to Marcy every week. And then when I got over that hump, we started building out the infrastructure better. I brought on our new COO. Um, we brought on a chief marketing officer, shifted Mike to chief information officer, and Todd has really kind of guided me through that growth. How, how do you think about how much, I know you invest a lot in mentorship and I mean, it sounds like with the success you've had, you definitely have the means to do it now along the way though. I know there was probably times where you felt like, shoot, am I spending too much on this? Is there a good rule of thumb of like how much you should be willing to spend on mentorship at any given time? Yeah, so it's really timing. So any dollar that you spend on mentorship, it's going to 10X, like guaranteed. It's just the time frame that it takes to do that, right? And that there's a lot of variables there. Like, you know, it depends the, the nature of the change that you have to make to be successful. That's really going to determine the kind of time frame it takes to get an ROI on it. Um, but really like this year, I spent 230,000 on mentors and it was just based on suddenly it's a different world and I need different skills. I need different guidance. I need different help. And so now the first question that I ask is who is the best person at the, in the world at this? Like who has already solved this problem, has proven it, and now they're the best in the world. And then I call them here's the situation. Can you help? And then they generally tell me a price. And I mean, I can't reveal some of these guys prices because that's in their contract, but like Seth Godin is not cheap. You know, <laughs> if, if you want Seth to come on your summit and talk to gym owners for an hour, like that's going to cost you tens of thousands of dollars. And, um, we did that over and over and over. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's been 10 X ROI every time. I love it. Yep. Um, real quick, when's, when's the next time you expect an in-person uh, event or summit? Well, we're going to host 30 in-person events in um, March. No, February. Yeah, February. February 13th is Two Brain Day. That's the official start date of Two Brain Business. Um, we've got about 30 local events planned worldwide. Most of those will run. Um, some places like Sweden might still be in lockdown. We're going to do that again in September for sure. We're hoping um, when we do our summit in June, we can't do a mass group event. You know, last year, 
um, Illinois like shut down a month before we were going to host our summit. We lost like a $20,000 hotel deposit. But um, even if that's the case and we can't gather in person, we'll do regional meetups. So what happens in a regional meetup is like, um, you know, deal in Florida, 30 gym owners go to Ashley's gym and they, um, they participate there. So there's like a live seminar this year. It's going to be Jocko mm-hmm. Willink. Uh, Jocko will talk to them for an hour and then they'll say, now do this thing. And the, the regional host will kind of guide them through the exercise. And then the next speaker will come on. So, you know, while I'd love to get 600 people in a room again, I don't think it's going to happen in 2021, but we're going to try and do it in 30 locations with 30 people each. Nice. Yeah. So you mentioned this time in your business when you're right around one to 3 million, where you had a lot of these stressful conversations. And I'd love, I'd love to hear you elaborate on that, whether that be the context of the conversations you were having, or if it was like, how much of it was, okay, I had, there was things I could have done better leading up to this to prevent these conversations from happening in the first place, or I'm, I'm still having these conversations daily. It's just such a better skill set for me that I don't think of it the same way or was like, how much of it was just part of this time in your business versus something you, you had to acquire that you now do regularly without thinking twice about it. Oh my God, Andrew, this is the next book, I think. <laughs> so this is a really common challenging time for most people. Like um, Greg Crabtree, I don't know if you've read his book, but he calls this the Valley of Death. Okay. No, I haven't read it yet. Okay. Um, he just published a new book. His first tr- book is called By the Numbers, and he talks about this Valley of Death. And what makes it so challenging is now you have to hire more highly skilled people, and so you're hiring people who are like specialists, right? They're they're like better than you at their job, so they're expensive. And you're hiring these people ahead of revenue. So suddenly like your, your management labor expense goes way up because that's the infrastructure that you need to grow to 3 million and five and 10, right? And, and so that's scary because you are putting out a lot of cash to hire top talent. The other thing is too, like you're, you're now dealing with a million dollar company, but you still, you have the skill sets of like a hundred thousand dollar entrepreneur. So all the same problems that you see in these gyms that are doing $5,000 a month, I was having in this multi-million dollar worldwide company, you know, I'd hired my friends. I had, um, you know, hired for um, skill instead of personality, right? And like, I hadn't kind of really enforced the rules the same way with everybody. It's all the same things. It's just on a bigger, more expensive, scarier scale. And uh, Greg's advice and one of Greg's assistants was our CFO at Two Brain for two years, just to get us through that period, was just like sprint as fast as you can. You know, um, between one and three million, you are hiring expensive talent, and so you've got to generate cash flow super, super fast. And so that's when we really ramped up our marketing from more trust-based, you know, email marketing to running Facebook ads. And so we did that. Um, and that got us over the $3 million mark. But now I've got this incredible team that's really like leading the whole program. And um, we, we can't shrink back down anymore. You know, it's, uh, yeah, you got to have that top talent. And sometimes the people that got you to the million dollar mark are not going to be the same people who get you to the $3 million mark or the five or the 10, because they don't have that skill set either. You know, I think it's really 
it's easy for the entrepreneur to see the need to develop themselves to get better as they grow, but it's not as easy to see the need to develop your staff. And I was pretty blind to that, honestly. And, you know, it cost me some key people. Yeah. Um, well, I appreciate you sharing that. Do you, sure. do you think, you know, you gave me this advice to outrun it. Do you think that's really the only way to do it? Or now that you've gone through it, do you think there's, do you see ways where it could have been approached differently? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I could have done things differently that would have required a lot of entrepreneurial confidence, you know? So, um, I don't mean to say like, I'll run it by getting cash any way that you can. It's just like, you have to have a plan to scale. Like if you hit a million dollars, you're at this natural inflection point where you've got to say, I'm good. Or you've got to say, this is just a base on which I'm going to build the next business. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it really is a different business at 3 million than it is at one. At 1 million, I mean, you're still involved. You're still talking to your clients regularly. At three, it's like you're the CEO now. And um, the other thing that held me back was I didn't really enjoy being the CEO um, for a long, long time. Now that I've got a good COO, I really do. Um, but it's just, it's not a natural role for me. So I think that I could have done a few things. I could have brought in an outside CEO to run the business and scale us through that process. Um, I could have focused more on just doing what I do best, which is creating content and, and kind of developing this information cycle at Two Brain. Um, but I could have also like spent less money on stupid shit, you know, like the first two iterations of the app, I spent a quarter million on those and they failed. Like I didn't have to do that. So yeah, I mean, the path to success, as you know, is not a straight line, unfortunately. Well, so what do you think if someone wants to follow in your footsteps and, and not follow in your footsteps in the sense that they want to have the largest mentorship practice, uh, you know, for gym owners, but they want to grow beyond their gyms and they, the gym is just that starting point for them. And they want to do something else, whether it be help other gym owners, they have other passions in other areas. They want to start an online business, something. What, what are your thoughts? Like, what is the best approach for that person? I, I feel like so many people who have gyms, they, they think that's it, or they don't, they don't build it into a real business because they aren't, they don't see what's beyond. And what, um, what do you see as the opportunities out there for people like that? Yeah, there's so many. So we have this, this process that we call the authority ladder. And basically the first thing that you have to do, let's say that your gym is as big as you want to make it, you know, you're doing well and you wonder like, what's the next step for me? or how do I get from 250 to a million or a million to three or whatever? The first thing that you have to do is actually counterintuitive. And that is niche down, like talk to your top one, two, three at the most clients. Okay. So you don't look at like your whole body of clients and say, what do these people want? What do they have in common? You find the best one and you say, what, what am I to this person? What do I provide? And Seth said something really profound in, um, well, he said it over and over and that's, you know, don't find, uh, don't find an audience for your product, find products for your audience. And my mentor, Todd said the same thing. Like once you know how to build an audience, you're set for life. It doesn't matter what you're going to sell. So the first thing that you do is you define like who your key audience is. Okay. Uh, Peter Thiel would have called this zero to one. So 
then you've got that key audience. You say, what, what do they need the most in life? Like, what is their dream and where can I help them with that? And once you've identified that, you say, now, who are the other people who have that same dream or that same target? And that becomes your niche. And then your next step is to demonstrate authority in that niche by looking for places where people like that congregate, looking at the questions they ask, answering those questions, you know, and then starting your own info cycle. So for example, I'm gonna use um, basketball referees, okay? Let's use football referees because I watched football yesterday. Football referees are some fit dudes, right? Like incredibly fit. I, you couldn't believe it. If you took a picture of a football referee from the 80s and a, a football referee from the Cardinals game yesterday and you looked at them, it's like, holy shit, the, the referee from yesterday is like an athlete, you know? These guys need physical training. They have very specific physical demands on them. They're in a high stress position. They have to be, you know, mentally sharp while they're running all the time. Um, that's a great niche. So if one of my clients was a referee, I would take that client out for coffee, hang out with them all day if I could, figure out what do they actually need in their life. And then I would build a service around that. And I would say, now let's test this on two to three more referees and see if it helps them. And then, you know, as time goes on, I would add services, take services away that weren't as helpful, and then start talking to other referees, finding where the other referees congregate. You know, what are the national conventions for referees? I'm going to be there. What uh, Facebook groups are referees in? I'm going to be there. And I'm going to find where I can help them, follow the help first strategy, produce content that answers their questions, win their trust, build their affinity, and then sell them the thing that will actually help them the most. And technology has opened up this doorway to scaling a fitness business that didn't exist before. Because if I wanted to train football referees in my city, guess what? There are none. You know, I'm in Northern Ontario. But if I want to train fitness football referees, there are 3,000 worldwide, and I can be the only expert. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's really basically what you're saying is once we be, move beyond the brick and mortar, there's so much, there's so many more niches that become available to us. Yeah. And the key is really like identifying that niche as small as you can and staying within it. You know, um, so one of the biggest temptations for me over the last two, three years was we would get these requests. Uh, hey, I own a hair salon in Memphis, Tennessee can you be my mentor? You know, I'm a contractor, whatever. There were like dozens of these things and we would try and take all of them. Yeah, we'll help. We'll help. We'll figure it out. We'll, you know, or a lot of it was just also like ego, you know, oh, I have this idea. I'm pretty sure it would work for a contractor. So we would take these clients. The, the problem was like, it was exhausting to try and translate your core product into 30 different languages and it was really distracting and so now one thing that COVID has done for me is shown me like it's my duty to stay focused on fitness and so what we started doing a few weeks ago was just reaching out to mentors in these other spaces testing out their product and referring people to them and what that's brought me man is just a new group of friends you know who are all kind of at the this level um who have made a lot of mistakes that I've made, but also some ones that I haven't made yet, you know, and they've done it, they did it with pharmacists and this guy's done it with dentists and this one's done it with hair salons and this one with dance studios and stuff. 
Um, and that's really the power of focus. You know, if you don't try to do everything and you focus on your one thing, man, help will find you. That's cool. I was actually, I had that question. If you guys do work with other business owners, so you kind of answered that. Do you even niche down within the gym industry now? Will you say, hey, it's it's a yoga studio. It's even, even that's a little bit outside of the functional fitness space. Do you, are you protective in that way as well? Yeah, to some extent. So like, if a yoga studio called us today and said, um, hey, I want to sign up for your program, what I would do is turn to our mentor who has experience with yoga studios and say, can you help this person? And if they say yes, then we would take them. But there are a lot of examples where somebody will call up and say, can you help me? You know, I'm just starting a personal training business. I have a job at Gold's Gym and we'll say no. We have a, like a, a lot of criteria that we look at when we're looking at clients and about 30% of the people who do our free call actually get like invited into mentorship. Um, but yeah, like a yoga studio, I think should have a different mentor than like a CrossFit gym should, you know? Yeah. So what are your thoughts on, uh, the future of the gym industry with, uh, the way COVID is the way, uh, you know, CrossFit has kind of evolved and, um, you know, we see a lot of gyms coming out now with like a licensing model NC fit, um, just talk to Sue Brower, who's licensing urban movement. Um, so you have these, these people that are kind of trying to fill the space between the CrossFit license, which is very hands-off and maybe more of a franchise model. Um, do you see something like that as part of the, the future or do you see it going in a different direction? Um, short term, I think franchises are a bad bet. Um, you know, and, and what COVID showed us was like, franchises are very appealing until there's anything that demands flexibility and then they're very fragile. So like franchises suffered the worst during COVID, for example. So we got approached starting around April to like franchise, 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 you know, license the two brain gym name or whatever. And then things really kind of reached a crescendo during uh, the stuff with Glassman. And we just said no, because like I, I did, I do have some clients who are in franchises and when you sign up for a franchise, you think that you're like buying the golden path or like the answer. And what you're buying is like less decision fatigue for sure. But you're also buying a risk that maybe a lot of people don't see and that's inflexibility. So for example, like not everybody knows it, but Orange Theory did not pivot fast. You know, Orange Theory closed all their gyms, told all their franchisees, just stay closed. And then several months later, they came out with like a, um, oh yeah, you should be selling people our online fitness classes. And by the way, you're not going to keep that revenue. We are. So now you're competing with your own franchise. You know, what a franchise should provide is like a, a universal data set analysis. So they can say, okay, here's what's working they should provide an information cycle so that you can take like the best franchisees and use them to teach everybody else. And um, most franchises don't do that, but you don't have to be a franchisor to do that. And so, you know, we've built that. We jokingly call it a white label franchise behind the scenes, but um, yeah, I, I don't think that you have to hold people to a rigorous structure to make them successful. And that's why we don't do a franchise or license model. Yeah. So we won't, we won't be seeing a two brain license in the future. No, man. I mean, you know, it, it could be that I spent too much time close to CrossFit HQ to see what the licensing model does. The licensing model really benefits the licensor. 
I don't think it really benefits the licensee that much. You know, it's like a tribute more than anything else. <clears throat> but um, no, we don't. We're not going to do it because we don't have to. Yeah, yeah. To a certain degree, you almost have that model already basically built in, which is people who are paying you for mentorship are paying what they would probably pay for a license, and they're getting more out of it while retaining the flexibility that you said is not there with a franchise. Yeah. I mean, you can keep your own brand, you know, I think yeah. that's, that's really important. And my mission is to make a million entrepreneurs wealthy, not, you know, open a million franchises. And so I, I want you to keep your business, your business, but we can give you all the same power that a franchise has. So you brought up the mission, a million entrepreneurs wealthy. How do you get from, uh, you say you're, you're niching down to gyms, but at the same time, the mission is, is sounds like it's still beyond gyms. Uh, where does that leap take place? It, it leads to the start of more gyms, honestly. Um, more, more people entering fitness as a career path. Um, we could do an entire show just on like the education system and, and what I think has to happen there to fix it. But that's the answer is we need to make a, a vocational career path for people who want to work in fitness there are not nearly enough fitness entrepreneurs to serve the need that's out there right now. And I'm not just talking about like the, the pool of $1 billion in fitness or whatever. It's the worldwide health crisis epidemic that we're facing right now will only be solved by coaches who care and to have enough coaches who care in the world, we're going to have to create them. And so that's really where we're headed in the future is more of a vocational path for people entering the industry. Um, you know, and, and I'm really fired up about that. I love that. We'll, uh, we'll wrap up there, Chris. Is there anything else you want to share? You could talk about where people can find more about you or the book or the mentorship stuff. Uh, everything's at twobrandbusiness.com. Um, you know, yeah, I, I wish we had three hours and a beer, um, <laughs> but this this will do for now. Andrew, I'm really grateful for the, the chance to chat in person. And um, yeah, I, I want to return the favor to you when I can. Awesome. Well, thanks for the time, Chris. And I really enjoyed our conversation.